and with relationships, because he thinks they're ephemeral, it's a weird thing because you're committed to something that's, that's going to disappear. It has to. Sure. Sure. So for him, relationships, like the moment of a relation cannot last forever. It's impossible. Not because of practical reasons, but because if you were to make it last forever, you would just sort of become disconnected from the rest of the world and that would make it no longer a relationship. Sure. Was that a kind of necessary suffering for him to He to called have it to... melancholy. Uh-huh. But the melancholy of like the human position for him is that relations all end. And I mean, in this respect, he's like Freud too, you know, he's very clear that there's no way out that, uh, you know, everything you love will die. And you have to like deal with that. Welcome to the Dignity of Suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges? Discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist, author and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Welcome to episode 18. I was once attending a conference in downtown Toronto, and the theme of the conference was the entry problem. How do we enter into psychological material? There's a whole philosophical tradition, most notably at present taken up by a German psychologist and philosopher named Wolfgang Giegrich, who relies on a way of looking at psychology that postulates that it is basically psychology studying itself. So when we're in therapy or we're thinking about ourselves, it's a very difficult thing to do. It's not like looking at an organ, for instance, and assessing what's wrong and deciding whether to do surgery or take another approach. Psyche studies psyche. And about halfway through the day at this conference, I had to go move my car and I put the car in the uh, underground parking lot at this hotel. And I went to go back upstairs to rejoin the conference. And there was a doorway not too far from where I parked. And up the stairs, there was another door that I opened and the door closed behind me. And then I realized that there were no handles on any of the doors in the room that I was in. And actually, there was a window just facing the street. And I found myself with all of these locked doors with no handles. <laughs> Sounds like I'd entered into a psychiatric ward. But no, I somehow had entered a door that I wasn't supposed to. And the irony wasn't lost on me that here I was at a conference discussing the entry problem and, and there was no way for me to enter. I eventually banged so hard on a door, uh, a man in a chef's hat came out and it must have been the rear of the kitchen. And I imagine that security fixed the issue after that. The reason I tell you this story is apropos of my interview today. Dr. Dustin Atlas is the director of Jewish Studies and assistant professor in the School of Religion at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. His current book project, Buber Talks, Jewish Dialogue and the Non-Human World, uses the work of Martin Buber to interrogate contemporary post-human concerns in Jewish thought, politics, and life, exploring the ways in which Jewish thought allows us to engage the non-human. I reached out to him because I have only a peripheral knowledge of the philosopher Martin Buber's work. Martin Buber, who lived from 1878 to 1965, was a prolific author, scholar, literary translator, and a political activist whose writings ranged from Jewish mysticism to social philosophy, biblical studies, 
religious phenomenology, philosophical anthropology, education, politics, and art. But most famous among his writings was a short but powerful book entitled I and Thou, which he wrote in 1923, where he considered our relations to others as twofold. There was the I-it relation, which prevails between subject and objects of thought and action, and there was the I-thou relationship, on the other hand, which exceeds the subject-object relationship. All to say that Buber, and as you'll hear Dustin go into great detail in our interview today, was very much concerned with the limitations, challenges, and obstacles in forming authentic connection. And this goes back to the entry problem because this is not something that can be forced, manufactured. This is a notion that pervades much of our lives, but also a lot of psychological theory. For instance, when we talk about making the unconscious conscious, there's a kind of golden rule that there can only be, as they say in French, an essay. There can only be an attempt. Carl Jung was famous for saying that we can only really circumambulate around something, whether it's a symbol or an image in a dream. But nonetheless, we must make an attempt. In thinking about my preface to my conversation with Dustin today, I wanted to share a kind of moment that I don't know whether I talk about it very often. I don't know if I've heard many other therapists talk about it, but it's the moment when somebody first walks in the door for therapy. And there's a kind of unknown that enters the room. Usually there's a lot of hunger when somebody finally decides to go to therapy. Usually there's a lot that comes with that in terms of expectation. As I publish and produce more, people come in maybe having a sense of who I am, having listened to this podcast, having read my writing. And all of that is in the room. And of course, this is who I am, but in that moment, meeting an individual, it isn't who I am. I've never been in that moment before. And as I've maybe talked about previously in this podcast, I also think it's important to resist certain temptations when it comes to finding answers. And I think that that pervades to a degree the conversation with Dustin today where at some point I felt that the two of us were talking about a kind of space to hold the non-space, the non-being. Later in our chat, he references relationships and references Martin Buber talking about all of the different revolutions that human beings go through in, in a long-term intimate relationship. And this is something that I face every day in my clinical practice with couples and in my own marriage, where it's really important. And I think that that's what I really appreciated about Dustin sharing with us his expert knowledge in the work of Martin Buber and others. It's crucial at least to try to frame the dissolution of moments in time of ways that we understand ourselves and others, which we need on the one hand to not become psychotic <laughs> so that we have some kind of predictable, continuous psychic skin and experience, but also one of the huge challenges existentially is having to mourn the loss of so much of what we experience as familiar and real. And understandably, there can be an incredible clinging on to what we have come to know about ourselves and others. And to be honest, I think this is half of what I do as a therapist, is sitting with people and mourning the loss of 
what they imagined themselves, their future, and others to be, and tolerating a kind of non-space, non-being, that often we have no indication of how long being in that state will last. And so I also want to avoid in my preface any kind of reification of, of these notions. There's certainly an attempt on my part to share a very private experience as a therapist where there's a very real part of me in the room trying to connect with someone, especially when we are first meeting, but also a part of me that needs to just observe and wait and listen. And frankly, the older I get, the more I've noticed that I'm not only listening to a voice which is not mine and is mine at the same time, but also a somatic felt sense of what my body is telling me in the moment. And in other podcasts, maybe I'll go into some of the great work of people like Alan Shore and Peter Levine, who confirm and really shore up the brilliance of those parts of our membrane that allow us to know uh, in a certain wisdom. But really, I think what pervades my conversation with Dustin is a kind of lament between an attempt at reaching some kind of connection with others, with animals, with inanimate objects, and the necessity to have to wait, withhold, and not cling on to experiences that ultimately we experience as true or authentic. And and that word, and Dustin doesn't mince words with the ideas that he finds very troubling, I often bristle at the notion of authenticity because I don't know, I don't really know what it means. We're never fully authentic. That's what the discovery of the unconscious, I think, really uh, solidified for us, that we don't really know often if we're being true or not being true. I think that, and Gabor Mate talks about this, we, we often have a sense whether we're betraying ourselves or not. But I don't like these kinds of wild goose chases towards authenticity because I think it leaves us often very disappointed. But <laughs> at the same time, and in this work, I endeavor to bring a certain authenticity. So as Walt Whitman famously said very well then, I contradict myself. I have been having a really great time interacting with many people on Instagram who are interacting with my writing and this podcast. You can find me at I am Mitchell Smolkin. I post every day during the week articles and information related to my work. And I hope you'll come there and join me. And please rate the podcast and review it online. And you can go to my website, mitchellsmolkin.com, where there's a ton of information, and you can also become a supporter of this podcast. And thanks to all of those who support me every month to bring these interviews and this material to you. Without further ado, I bring you Dr. Dustin Atlas and our conversation about the work of Martin Buber. Well, Dustin, it's a pleasure to have you here in all your spare time. I, I, I'm often told that. <laughs> we sat together, oh, I don't know, a couple of years ago now in Kingston. And I think I was just getting to know you. And you, first of all, let me know that you were a scholar of, of Martin Buber's work. And then you you added that it wasn't even so much the conventional notion that a lot of us think of when it comes to to Buber and his his focus on on relationship and really that delineation of of relationship but you brought up the fact that you were even more interested with his work on relationship I think with animals and even with things with objects and so mm -hmm. I wanted to bring you on to the podcast in part and I was thinking about it kind of all day today in my office uh, anticipating our conversation you know because it it's just an interesting area of thought to consider how two people connect. And, a, and as a therapist, I'm, I'm constantly 
oscillating between the fact that I think I'm just making everything up and, and maybe occasionally I actually uh, connect with somebody. So yes. thank you for coming on. And, and I, I'd love to start with how you initially became interested in, in Buber's work or why you chose to investigate that so deeply. I, I'd, I'd be wary of saying I didn't do anything deeply, but um, <laughs> why did I get invested? Because I think Buber adds a kind of new category to the way we think about knowledge and dialogue. So if you think, I mean, the term dialogue has become, I would say, sort of cheap, right? I mean, it, it doesn't mean much. It's used by human resource departments as well as anyone else. But his notion of dialogue, like I, part of the reason the term dialogue has become so cheap is because we know there's something there, like there's something to the kind of concept. And so you throw it around and it sort of points at this, but it's it's easily co-opted. But I think he sort of saves the concept from this kind of cheap co-option. And what he says is, I mean, if, if you want me to just sort of express in sort of um, boober for dummies kind of terms, something like this if i say i know like every single thing about you right like every single thing like the past present future your genome whatever your history um and i know everything about you if i was to then meet you what would change right is there something extra that happens when i meet you that is not about you right and so like an easy way of thinking about this is talking to versus talking about so i can talk about you and know everything about you from talking about you but i don't know you right until i've talked to you we want to that's an intuition at least that most of us want to hold to that talking to gives you something that talking about someone doesn't doesn't give you and the question is is like what is that and in a weird way this thing that i can only get in dialogue with you and in a weird way, it's nothing, because if it was something, I could talk about it. So there's this weird no thing, nothingness that comes, or like just non-thingness that comes with when I talk to you or when I dialogue with my cat or a tree or, or anything, like a kind of relational type of knowledge that can't be captured any other way than, than, than interacting with someone. And so when I, when my first year university, when this sort of lit up in my head, I realized that it was something that I wasn't learning anywhere else, either in my philosophy courses or my humanities courses. And so that sort of brought me into working with him. Did Buber think that this was, that this happens innately or automatically between two people? Or is this, this is something that one has to intentionally evoke in a relationship uh, neither. Cause he's annoying like that. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's, he says it has to be a combination of will and grace, like the television show, uh, or the Christian theological concept. So like you have to be open to it, but it won't always happen. In fact, if there was a mechanism for making it happen consistently, sure. it wouldn't be real. Right. Because it would then be a something that could be captured. So it's a kind of trained spontaneity, which he thinks can happen in some therapeutic situations, some friend situations, some situations, again, going for a walk. The only exception for him, because he's a religious thinker much more than I am, is that he thinks God is the thing that you can always talk to, but not necessarily talk about. Um, it's, I've, I've oversimplified his position there, but basically that's the main thing with, with like, there's a certain way that the holy is always accessible to you. But you have to be open to it properly. And it changes for him depending on time and place, et cetera, et cetera. So the short answer is no, there's no way of, of, pro, of making sure it always happens, but neither is it totally random. So, I mean, and this is a sort of earlier 20th century, like cliche Heidegger or something similar. You have to be, a, it's a kind of openness to things, a sort of clearing yourself or waiting and then seeing what happens. But, but again, yeah, like, especially with two people, I can't make you like sure. dialogue with me. <laughs> right i can and, just um, make you dialogue with me uh, i mean you can make us talk but uh <laughs> so like yeah so when i say talking to and talking about there's sure that's a cheap version of what he's getting at for well this sure reason, right. right that's like, what's yeah. that's what's trickled down to sort of popular yeah. you know that's his yeah. that's where his that's, bread and butter yeah but i mean really it's a bit i mean the problem with talking as a, as a sort of metaphor for what he's talking about is that you can for him have a relationship with say a pond and obviously the pond doesn't talk so the weird thing with him is this question why does he use the word dialogue when a lot of the things he's talking about are, are non-speaking relationships and, and if anything for him speaking the way we are now can actually hide or make relationships harder because uh, the speaking 
and, and stop me if I go too far with this, but so speaking is a weird thing because I can like write down our words and sort of have them as an, as an object. And so it seems very permanent talk, even though it's ephemeral, like as I talk, my words disappear, this is being recorded. So, you know, we can go back to this and listen to it again. So in a weird way, this conversation lives on independently of us or independently of whatever relation we have right now. So it makes this relationship seem more solid than it is. So it hides it in a sense. So Buber's very clear that in a way, the sort of tenuousness of all dialogue, you won't discover with human beings. You're more likely to discover it with a cat. Because hmm. when you're talking to a cat, the cat is very aware. I mean, I don't know if you're a cat person, but a lot of yep. cats are very aware when you're talking to them that like, they're like, is, do you mean, he says like, do you mean me? Are you talking to me? Is this serious? Is this happening? And then it disappears. And so the cats teach you a type of anxiety about how dialogue is very ephemeral. And this also, well, Boover has been used by the business world and the therapeutic world and the sociological world extensively. I don't know that any of them have really come to terms with this sort of fragility because everyone wants to use it, right? They want to use dialogue. Sure, and sure. the problem is, is in a weird way, you can't. Um, sure, sure. You can That's use like the when word I, dialogue. When I get hired or companies try to hire me to, to uh, help their workforce sort of become a bit more embodied and vulnerable yeah. so they can become more productive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, but it is, well, I don't know if you want your workplace to be vulnerable. Uh, the, the, the sort of Marxist in me kind of bridles at that. But um, right. but right. Uh, yeah, but I mean, a lot of the sort of trickle, trickle down isn't bad. I mean, it's just that it, it misses something that you can get from like a sort of deeper dive into the text. But um, there's nothing wrong with the sort of forms. But Buber, and also I'm not sure Buber's notion of therapy would have been that great in practice i mean and i just don't know i know like for him the therapeutic situation he thinks a lot of people's problem is that they, they've lost the ability to relate to things properly and so the therapeutic situation is like a separated off bubble for dialogue so you can sort of help train someone to re-engage in relationships but this of course is all very limited um of applicability i'm sure but uh, i mean he was very very hostile to young and I think was engaged in a weird competition with Freud as almost every other Austrian Jewish intellectual was. I mean, there was a way that Freud was like the big the Leviathan. I want to come back to that in a sec. I just wanted to relay that what you said about the animals in some ways are more conducive to, to an extent because we hide perhaps behind, behind language that often in my practice, whether it's in couples or, or individuals, especially those that are remarkably shut down, it's their animals, actually, that'll be the one place in their whole life that they feel like they, you know, a, a spouse will come in and say he doesn't or she doesn't talk to anybody else except yeah, in some way. And then that'll be actually the straw that breaks the camel back, which, you know, I guess goes to Freud and the lost object. But like if they lose the cat or the dog, that's like, oh, I see. You know, yeah, then, yeah. Then, 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 you know, there's cracks in the armor. Yeah, that makes sense. Again, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of stuck in this very limited world, so I don't actually deal with real people if I can help it. Um, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> yes, that's my job to come in and at least connect the dots to an extent to clinical work. Yeah. What, what was his hostility to Jung? Do you, do you remember? Um, he thinks that Jung internalizes things that are found actually only in the world. He also thought that Jung was proto-fascist, which, you know, fair enough. But for him, he thinks Jung would he have been better off if he just sort of dropped religion rather than try to make it like an internal need of human beings because it gets rid of the relational element. So if you say that God is found within or the need for God is kind of like innate, then you sort of kill the relationality. I mean, you see this with students all the time. They come in, the religious students come in, they think they love Jung because they think that he gives them religion back. And then they realize that like he doesn't. I'm not as hostile as um, Buber is with Buber for this reason. And also, they also just wrote at each other. Like they just had several public attacks on each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the whole Eranos thing for Buber was basically an attempt on the part of like for a liberal technocratic society to like have its cake and eat it afterwards. So to have a kind of fully mechanistic world that like spirituality is something you could do on at home and on the weekend or whatever and for boober religion is either all the time or it's not at all uh -huh. right well in that light then was he prescriptive uh, i know earlier this wasn't you know this isn't something and and this touches on a lot of psychoanalytic theory but but this isn't something that you can somehow just 
willingly manifest. But was he prescriptive vis-a-vis a kind of attention throughout one's life or training? So in, intention and attention, I mean, I think two things that haven't been really studied enough, period, is, is, is very, very important for Buber and action. Him, like a lot of people I like, like even like Purse and other people, for them, like paying attention is, is the beginning of anything like ethics or religion, like until you can pay attention. You've just got kind of glimmerings or ecstasy or these sorts of momentary things. And until like his attention is, in a sense, the beginning of a kind of commitment to a relationship. And with relationships, because he thinks they're ephemeral, it's a weird thing because you're committed to something that's that's going to disappear. It has to. Sure. Sure. So for him, relationships, like the moment of a relation cannot last forever. It's impossible. Not because of practical reasons, but because if you were to make it last forever, you would just sort of become disconnected from the rest of the world and that would make it no longer a relationship. Sure. Was that a kind of uh, necessary suffering for him to He to called have it to... melancholy, but the, the melancholy of like the human position for him is that relations all end. And I mean, in this respect, he's like Freud, like who just, who, you know, is very clear that there is no way out that, you know, everything you love will die and you have to like deal with that. Buber's problem there is he just, again, he thinks that Freud makes a lot of things internal. So, you know, Freud talks a lot about guilt, and I'm sure you deal with this all the time, and guilt feelings. And, you know, Buber says, no, no, guilt is real. Like, it's a real thing. You can be guilty or not guilty. It's not a feeling. There's a feeling you have when you're guilty. (laughs) And sometimes you can have that feeling when you're not guilty. But guilt is real, and you probably, like, are guilty, if according to Buber. So for some stuff. Uh, he wasn't like a doom and gloom religious thinker at all. In fact, he's less doom and gloom than Freud, but he, for him, this sort of move on the part of a lot of, because the therapeutic situation is a weird blend of, as you know, of, uh, I shouldn't be telling you what the therapeutic situation is. For, for Buber, what the therapeutic situation is, is a weird blend of like theory and, and practice. And so the type of theory changes, right? And this is, I guess, Freud's like innovation, but uh, I'm losing my thread. It doesn't matter. Uh, isn't that apropos of our conversation maybe i don't know i I mean i'm just tired well i mean i'm saying that tongue-in-cheek but but i i think that that is probably the single hardest thing for me as a you know someone who sits with people all day long is confronting the hunger and the anxiety of you know noticing within myself the desire to cover the hunger over with my own words theories mastery of my profession and i mean i mean for people part of the problem in the therapeutic situation too is is like it requires a lot of like patience, right? Because it may not work every session. And then this becomes much more complicated because you know therapy is expensive. So if you're shelling out, you know, 150 bucks an hour, you kind of want you want your relationality. So there's a temptation, I'm assuming, to sort of sure. offer that in some sort of airsats form. Sure. And so this avoiding that is, is for Buber is, is is important, and he doesn't think that most people are able to do it. He also thinks, in a way, it's it's a bit of a it can't be fully systematized. That not everyone can be a therapist. There, there has to be a kind of some people can heal and some people can't, and some people can only heal some types of people, et cetera, et cetera. He he specifically referenced this. He wrote, "This is I this the first part definitely, and the second part." Uh, I'm not sure if that's my interpolation. Or it wasn't. That. Yeah, I'm just I'm curious the first part, that he yeah, was so specific absolutely. about. Hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so he's he's um yeah no. So he's very clear about the fir- the first point, and I think the second point is part of that discussion. That like um, the problem with psychoanalysis is the belief that you can actually have a theory in a standalone sense of the therapeutic because of what we said before that it's it's like a will and grace combo. So there has to be a spontaneous element. Now, this is all very romantic. I mean, of course, in, in reality, I don't know that this actually pans out at all. I have no idea. I mean, again, I don't deal with human beings. Well, I think, I mean, I was reflecting on this actually in the last session of my day today before we met, and it was the first time I was meeting somebody and I was simultaneously aware that there was something, you know, there was a kind of hunger and pressure in the moment but I was aware that this, for this to in any way, shape, or form be a thought or come into relationship will take a long time. <laughs> and and I, I made the remark actually that these types of sort of relational disturbances 
that caused a human being to, you know, remain in a perpetual state of either anxiety or shutdown. In those courses of treatment that I have done, it number one, it's years. And number two, when I look back, I realize that I didn't often know what I was doing except holding a kind of space. And and that, you know, you we you mentioned Roger before before we got on together, but that was something that he often I keep in the back of my mind that they will make use of you in, in whatever way they need you in that moment. Yeah. <laughs> and, no, that makes sense. I know Carl Rogers is is the person who felt most able to talk to about these sorts of issues. Um, the one he felt le- the least sort of separated from. Uh, not that they agreed on everything, but uh, but the Carl Rogers Buber dialogue is called a dialogue and not a conflict for a reason. <laughs> Whereas a lot of his discussions with other people, like like Carl Jung, it was just hostility. They just clearly despised each other and were not shy about putting that in print. Mm-hmm. And then Freud, uh, it's trickier, but he did publish a book called Moses within a year of, Freud, of publishing a book called Moses and didn't reference him once. So, uh, <laughs> so that was, that was a move. And when it comes to inanimate objects, mm-hmm. do you mind saying a bit more about what, what Buber was fascinated in that regard or? I mean, so for him, inanimate objects, I mean, you have to be very careful about so the weird thing with dialogue, because it's it's spontaneous and because it's somewhat singular, there's you have to be very careful with talking about types because, um, I mean, you have to, to carve up the world. But in a way, of course, in one sense, you're going to relate to every object differently, but also different types of objects are related to differently. So, for instance, if you're working with a machine, that's probably different than looking at a television, and that's probably different than carving... A, a figure on a, a piece of bone or whatever um, to use one of the, the types he uses or, or a cave wall. And also for him, the, the very first have to like distinguish between a kind of appreciative relationship and a kind of creative relationship. Not that there's not something creative, but in, in even like an appreciative relationship, I'm lying under a tree and I, and I suddenly have this kind of connection with it. There's something creative there, but, not as much as someone who's painting the tree, right? Who who sort of takes the form of the relationship and 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 kind of permanently encloses it. And the, and the artistic relationship is is one which is is nice for illustrating the kind of way that the relationship falls back into the mundane. Because you know maybe while you're painting it, you have this kind of relation, but then it's just a, it's a painting, right? Yes. And then the painting might reawaken relations in the future, but it might not, right? Yes. Yes. So it's it's the kind of concrete thing left over like the way the recording of these words will be left over when we're done <laughs> which is where i can see his you know jung perhaps co-opting the religious experience for these kinds of activities i could imagine as you're saying buber uh, insisting on a kind of separation that this sometimes yeah. is just you're just painting this is oh and, and more extreme he would actually say that experiences just aren't important that experiences are a weird way of trying like turning religion into an experience is like turning guilt into a feeling it's 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 trying to take something real and relational and and capture it. Like experience is something you have on vacation to a certain extent. And I mean, every time I've done something major in my life, someone has someone who I've, I've always usually disliked them has said something like, well, they will create great experiences or, or they can't take your experiences from you. And this is just another mode of accumulating things, right? It, this, it would be seems, the, this would be what they say to you. Is that right? Yeah, like you'll have a great experience uh, if you're doing, you're doing this. And I mean, I've always bridled at that because I've never really wanted well, not never, but it's been a long time since I've wanted experiences and that sort of sense of something you you just collect in your head. But yeah, so his problem with Jung is that Jung has turned religion into an experience. So that's already the problem. It's not that he uses religious experiences incorrectly. It's that he thinks of religion as experiential. That's the problem. Whatever you do with them at that point for him is bad. Therapy, scrapbooking, going to church on the weekends and being an atheist the other five days or six days or however many days are in a week, that sort of stuff. That's his issue, right? Is that you've turned it into something that can be turned on and off. And well, relations are turned themselves on and off. You don't get to have that. You don't get to control the switch. For the exact reason I said before, you cannot make your partner dialogue with you. That's a kind of torture. Like talk, tell us where the, the bomb is. Is not that Well, it's a kind from- of torture, but it's a kind of futile. I mean, eventually you're going to reach the, the melancholy that he... <laughs> Oh, you'll reach it, but you may get something out of it first, right? I mean, we all know there's value in a kind of crude sense in forcing someone to engage in dialogue with you in the right context. You can get something out of it. Um, I mean, again, HR departments love this stuff for a reason. 
So that that would be his issue, I think. Um, and that's what he's afraid of in the therapeutic situation. But it's also what he thinks is its potential is, is precisely that it's sort of in a way fake, but in a good way or a virtual, if you prefer, or enclosed in a bubble. That there's a, sure. there's a that it provides a space to like exercise your ability to relate. Well, and th- and that's where him and Jung, I guess, would align because they both, from what I'm hearing you describe, there was an emphasis on holding this kind of tension that it's the entry problem, right? It's yeah. it's you know you have to somehow submit to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and for him, he, he holds that children are sort of able. So children aren't pantheistic or uh, panpsychic; they're panrelational. And I mean, in my experience with kids, this is true. They like yell at things, and they bump into them, and they will talk to things, and they mimic sounds of animals and so on and so forth. And uh, the object relation, I mean, you see it with children, they have a much easier time relating to objects than we do. Not all children, but most children. Did, and, did he articulate what he thinks happens, what, what changes or what, what is lost? He thinks that basically the, the, the well, let's, we keep going back to the same thing, but the, the fact that the relational world is, is transitory means it's not stable. You can't build anything on it. It's insecure necessarily so your need for security which is a real need he, he doesn't dismiss it uh, requires that you also have a world that stands in space and time like a solid thing you you can live in and so the question for him is does this world block relations or does it not and he would say and i think he's right about this that the current way that we build that kind of stable world in space and time, the dependable world of work and, you know, socializing and vacationing and whatever is, is, is very bad for allowing for the sort of spontaneity that relation requires. So he says that basically the older, the, the kid doesn't have to live in that world because the kid has that world looked after for them. Right. right and so right. adulthood is, is difficult in that you have to simultaneously build a home and things that aren't constantly chaos. I mean, it's terrible for children to grow up in an, in a chaotic environment like that. But on the other hand, allow for spontaneity nonetheless. This is something I'm I'm terrible at. And I think a lot of the time you asked why I was drawn to Boober at the beginning. You're also often drawn to people who like deal with things that you're you're bad yeah, at. Research is me search, right? Yeah, yeah. So like <laughs> you find one of your flaws and you sort of um, think that Just studying it enough will fix life. it. <laughs> it. It won't fix it. It will do nothing. The thesis cure is, is bullshit. But uh, whatever. I mean, you know, now I'm, I'm in too deep to change gears now. Uh, on that note, did he, did he, was he self-reflective in his own life about? Uh, he was self-reflective, but I mean, he, you know, for a guy who write a book called uh, I and You, uh, he doesn't say you very, didn't say you very much in public or, I mean, in, like in his real life, he was notoriously like kind of bad at a lot of at least day-to-day relations. He was very good with cats. Uh, he apparently had like nine cats in Jerusalem and they would just come in and out of his house all day and he would talk to them and know all of them and so on. But yeah, I mean, like everyone and especially, you know, that whole crop of, of, sort of spoiled Viennese and German intellectuals. They're all sure, ki- right. kind of, I think, insufferable, like as human right, beings. Right, I mean, right. I don't they know that the I want right. I don't know that I'd want to talk to like Shola Madorno, Benjamin, or any of them for more than an hour or so, right? They all seem kind of like jerks. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm assuming anyone who wrote these theories was working through them because they had a hard time doing them. I mean, I'm assuming if, I don't know, but I'm assuming if you, you were just naturally very good at relating to things, you wouldn't bother putting pen to paper about it. You would just do it. Well, I always, in the back of my mind, had Buber at, you know, the the nascent Jewish state, et cetera, and whether rightly or wrongly, but this touches a bit on what I saw you writing about, he he was advocating for a kind of relationality, both in their, in their geographical situation and, but you, and I didn't get through all of it, but you were also talking about his interest in art and anthropological philosophy, that this this for him had to do with like he thought it was, he thought it was important for the right, the soul of the of the of the. Yeah, younger Buber talks a lot more about soul of like, and he thinks that you. I mean, the younger Buber was a sort of less reflective Zionist than older Buber. What what happened? What what changed? What I mean, I think just the reality, the actual sure. complexity of the situation, like forced him to rethink things. Also, you know, he was part of a group it's like i'm really the wrong person to talk about this i haven't studied this extensively at all but i mean the groups that he were part of sort of just lost influence as well right the certain kind of leftish organizations 
but for him, I mean, his interest was very aesthetic from the beginning, right? Like, I mean, art, his speeches at the Zionist Congresses are very clearly concerned with art and the state. He published several Jewish artists. And for him, I mean, there was a cliche in Germany at the time that Jews just basically couldn't be good artists. And he just takes these cliches and inverts them and tries to argue that the things that, that say people right. like Wagner call Crass, flaws are actually good, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I'm not Crass sure people, how, right? He distinguished between artists and kind yeah, of... Yeah, he was... So he was... So, and this is a bit more mature of him. So he, he becomes sort of more obsessed, independent of the sort of Zionist project or sort of as an anthropological project is like, where does the design, so for him, thinking is a lot of thinking is in images, a lot of relating is in images and much of what we do in the world concerns images, the imagination, but real images, right? Not just sort of floaty fantasies. And so his question is, where does this desire come from? And unsurprisingly, given who he is, the answer is something like the image making urge is is an urge to a kind of relationship that's both super personal so it involves kind of the social all at once but also individual that you're the one kind of fulfilling it so there are certain images i mean i think most of us think like the way we carve up the world is sort of we have a we have a picture of the way the world works and the picture precedes the thinking right so the thinking i have and the analytic claims and the arguments i make and all sure. the stuff that spews out of my mouth is usually just after the fact justifications for the picture sure sure right so the question is, is where does this picture come from does it come from you does it come from outside of you and for Boober, Look, I mean, uh, undergrads will often say to you something like the truth is within you and like sober minded adults will say, no, what's true is the world. The world has like hard and has, you know, edges and you have to whatever. And for Boober, they're both completely wrong. Probably the undergrad is in a better shape to like expand their picture than the sober minded adult is <laughs> usually lost to us for it's neither. It has to be neither. Both and neither at the same time, if you want to be more dialectical, so which I, which I don't like to be, but yeah, so I would just say it's neither. It's and um, sure, and so the image making drive is in some respects fundamental. Your image of the universe does a lot for like how you feel and behave as, as a human. Um, and the problem to go back to your question of like where does this sort of block come from is that. Our you picture of the universe is now in extremely clear. It's very lucid. It's very solid. But the weird thing is, is that we're not included in it. I'm snickering over here a little bit because it, as you talk, it it refines for me that that kind of what I do is I just help people be better at being disappointed. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's <laughs> just like, like you know, comma help you be better at being disappointed at the things that you thought you knew and and saw and had and don't anymore and how we can all somehow just bear that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think realizing that you can be disappointed and survive the disappointment is is, is very important. Sure. Um, Buber would not want to stop with disappointment, but he would want to break first the notion that the world is, is, is as solid as you think it is. Sure. Uh, because that solidity for him just block, it's too opaque, it blocks your ability to relate to things. Or like for him, there's a, in, insofar as he, he appropriates Hasidic thinking, uh, there's a spark in everything that you can relate to for Boober. And I mean, everything, including this, you know, pre-manufactured crap lamp I see in front of me. And that's where it gets really hard to buy this. I think it's very difficult to see how a manufactured good can, can have this. And this is where he maybe verges a bit too into the romantic because he doesn't really tackle that. Yeah, I'm probably mixing my own re research and interests, but when it comes to therapy or analysis, there is there is always this idea. I think Freud used to. There was always this question. You know, can can anybody be analyzed? Right? Was always you know. And I think there were comments. Well, you know, rich people can't be analyzed because not enough anxiety, or you know, and and. But but there's also something I think that we've kind of updated our thinking around, which is the way that disappointment can get so corrupted developmentally mm -hmm. in, in a chaotic environment. And it seems to me when you sort of mentioned that, that, you know, Buber wouldn't want to stop at disappointment. It's almost like when I, when someone can be disappointed, that's when therapy begins. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. So for him, it's, he would call it maybe even something like fear of God has to precede love of God, but you don't want to have just one or the other for him. Right. So you have to have the kind of terror at how 
both vast and fragile things are. And that sort of combination of immensity and fragility is, is sort of really hard to take. But if you stop there, so like a, someone like Kafka is going to stop there and be like, what do you get out of this sort of vision of, of the infinite? But we wrote in a letter once to Max Brode, one of Kafka's friends. He's like, I love Kafka, but I would like to think you don't have to always be depressed. And uh, <laughs> and that's the thing. So for, for Buber, you have, and this is why he's not a kind of hard ethical thinker in the way, say, Levinas or these other guys are, um, and they are mostly guys. If for him, you have an obligation to enjoy things and to relate to things and to look after yourself, precisely because everything is relational. Like if you poison yourself, but try to build up someone else, it won't work. As we know, if you torture yourself, you'll end up torturing the people around you. And uh, for him, there's also a religious obligation here. But first you have to have... An adult first has to have the fear. A kid doesn't, right, for him. They're not in the same world. But an adult usually has to have the fear to break down the it world or the world of things in the crude sense of thing that they've built up. And uh, for him, and I think this is right, a lot of the time the way that world breaks down is not by dialogue with another human because that sort of keeps reaffirming the world, but also like a dialogue with something that's non-human a non-human animal or a non-human object, or for some people, it's craft work. I mean, we know a lot of people, when they retire, they take up a craft and suddenly it opens up the world to them in a completely sure. different way. And part sure. of the reason is, okay, people talk a lot about creativity or expression or this other sort of somewhat fascist bullshit, but uh, it's they learn to relate to things. I mean, they learn to relate to paint. They learn to relate to physical objects. Well, and it's a kind of denouement, I guess, as you're saying. I mean, I mean, uh, the, you know, you you mentioned the sort of loss of that kind of that that kind of childish, you, you know, uh, ability, and there's almost this return in some ways to relate <laughs> to to find some way to relate to objects. I think also you 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 are given the 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 opportunity once you say no longer working and exchanging your labor for some sort of abstract thing like money you, you you can become materialist again when you're older like mm -hmm. i mean most people are just insufficiently materialist so they don't actually relate to material objects at all they relate to signs symbols brands things like that and relation to material objects or things so look a lot of people didn't like boobers idea of relating of having dialogue with non-humans because they thought a it was silly and embarrassing Embarrassing that he would that he would embarrassing that he would that their teacher would would say that you, okay. you need to talk right. to cats. Um, so it's embarrassing and and maybe impossible. But that mean but also for them the world is especially a lot of sort of politically minded people. The, their world is actually very narrow and that it only involves humans. And so it seems expansive because I mean how many humans are there now? Like eight billion or something? Too many. But um, it seems expansive. You know, you have art, you've got your your music, you've got all this stuff, but if you can't relate, but in a weird way, it's actually quite a narrow world to only relate to human beings and to only have dialogue with human sure. beings. And it's a really self, it, it's a process that kind of affirms itself and becomes overly solid and uses relationality to build bricks that then block relationality in the future. Um, well, I think I mentioned to you that, that I was speaking to a woman uh, today who I uh, mentioned I might bring this up in the podcast, who was almost a bit perplexed by the power of, of this kind of solitude and relationship to animals. You know, it, it, there was a power there that she just couldn't quite wrap her head around. Mm -hmm. And I mean, not everyone relates to everything all the time. That would be completely bonkers. But uh, yes, yeah, some people it's animals, some people it's, sure. you know, whatever, whatever's around. And I mean, sure. I don't know, it's, 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 it's a confusing picture of the world, but, and I'm not sure he, it, there's, there's big gaps and problems, but I don't want to say like Boober is going to solve all your problems if you want to understand relation. He won't, but uh, his sort of insight that relationality gives you something or access to something that nothing else does and that this is important and that it's not actually human, like exclusively human is these are all sort of essential insights. Well, it's um, one of the single biggest laments I think that comes into my office is the impermanence of relationships, but also the initial, you know, the, the fall that just keeps seemingly just keeps happening over and over again until, you know, we have our last one. <laughs> yeah. I feel just as a final kind of piece here, because you mentioned your kids, you know, I know that for me professionally, it's been an infinite source of, uh, I don't know, testing what I thought I knew. 
But I wonder how that's been for you to have two young children with regard to to what you study. Um, it's been uh, okay. So the problem is I write very slowly. So I'm still working through my dead cat. Uh, I haven't <laughs> got to the kids yet. Uh, when I they'll be part of this supposed book that I'm working on, but uh, the central part, literally the central part. <sighs> I mean, they have changed things. A lot of the time they put flesh on the bones of a sort of theory I had before or, or forced me to change it. And it's, of course, transformed my life. But I've always been very attentive to kids. So it's not like some people, I think it's a bit more shocking when they have kids sure, because they're sure. not around children. But I mean, I was the eldest before and I've always liked kids. And I've taught children my like a lot of my life. But yeah, how does it change it? watching them say hello to animals or like or actually just so okay a lot of let me put it very simply say you accept that you can have dialogues with cats and stones and remote controls and whatever your car a lot of people i i know not me i i hate cars with a fiery passion but for a lot of like i know people for whom like their car or their motorcycle is like a thing sure, they have like right, a serious sure. relationship with sure and it's a it's a weird relationship but it's a real relationship so say you accept you can have these relationships and these dialogues. So the sort of banal question that comes up that you have to deal with is, is, well, how? Like, how do you do that, right? And so one thing that having kids sort of helped me... So like one way you can relate to objects is by craft, right? How do you talk to a kid who doesn't talk like, a, like an infant? Um, and I was banging my head against it. And then I was reading Melanie Klein and I realized, oh, I'm, it, it's, it's you play with them. Right. It's, it's very simple. And so, but that my kids helped me realize the extent to which play is, is a form of dialogue mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and also watching them when they talk to animals, they would just mimic the sounds of the animals. So like in Ramona, she's, she's like my, 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 my youngest, she's already got a fair bit of language, but she still will like, if you, she hears a bird, sometimes she'll just like make the sound back to it. She says hello to bugs, things like that. So and watching them sort of, talk without words and talk with play and talk to each other in their own private language made me sort of see how it's, it's the, how you can answer the like, well, how question, the sort of basic question, which is as important as this is the sort of deep seeming question. Like the deep seeming question is like, can you have a relationship? The answer is yes. But like, the, okay, so how the hell do you do that is very important. Yeah. That's so interesting that you came back to play. I mean, that was the British psychoanalyst, Winnicott, I mean, that yeah. was his big thing around transitional spaces. And, and it's also what seems to go, what, what seems to become impossible when we are kind of frozen. Well, we're it's also like, just over, we're overworked, right? I mean, almost yeah. everyone I know has very little time. But to, I bristle at it sometimes when I read, you know, it's like, oh, just play or let your mind wander. Yeah, no, like, no, it's, I, it's kind of irritating. In the same way, a lot of therapy stuff is it's like you read Melanie Klein, she's like, okay, so I saw this kid like 5,436 times. And like, no one can afford to do that anymore right? right i mean no one has the money sure. and even if they did they don't have the time right. so yeah it's 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 tricky to know what to do when you're dealing with these people living in a world where they clearly just had way more spare time than we have but yeah play is important also as much as winnicott theorizes it in a really wonderful way melanie klein just did it it was just so when you read her works you don't see it but her method or like when people would describe her method it's she would just sit and play with kids for hours and yes. hours on end too bad her children hated her so much oh i mean yeah yeah i mean like i said a lot of people deal with things that they're incapable of doing in their day-to-day -day life but yeah this she would just play winnicott of course plays and then theorizes it but yeah so i knew these theories but it hadn't ever actually felt real to me or i'd never really understood it until i i actually sat down and played with kids and my cat yeah. of 22 years is the first animal i had that really taught me the sort of way that non-human dialogue could like work and affect you and also <laughs> and also the weird blend between the transitory ephemeral nature of like the dialogical situation and then the commitment to own a cat for 22 years right I mean, right, every relationship, you mean, right. every relationship, yeah. I mean, if you, if you're married and you're serious about it, it means you are committed to long, a long term, almost eternal on and off, like ebb and flow, right? Because right. every yeah. relational situation will end, but you're saying, even when it ends, I'm still here. And even if you and I completely transform, we're still committed. 
So it's not like the transitory nature of the kind of dialogue relation, like exhaust relation. Now you, you still have to commit to it over and above that. And that's also where the sort of it world comes in, you know, a marriage, sure, maybe spiritual and internal and blah, blah, blah. But it's also, you know, there's an object, there's a ring, there's a group of people that come over and will make you feel bad if you, if you get a divorce, these sorts of like, you know, right. um, they contain, they put up these walls around. The, yeah. And, yeah, and sure. And that's important. The same way yes. your workaday world builds like a bubble around a child's world. And so that the kid can run around like, you know, relating to rocks all day long and it doesn't matter. It's like when someone says to me when I'm assessing things and they say, you know, really, I'm just here for the kids. And I'm like, oh, well, good. That, that's good. I'm glad you're still here. <laughs> Yeah, I, to, I'm here for you know. the kids too. Um, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, I nice. mean, like, you know, when, when, when your kid asks you when they're very little, like, what is, what, what do you do at work? I mean, like, you know, part of it's just like, I, I go to work so that like, you can ask stupid questions like this. Um, <laughs> but, um, and I don't fall apart. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I fall apart routinely, but maybe you, you don't. Yes. You and I, you and I both know that's not true. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, uh, so we'll skip over that. But um, yeah, yeah, so that's, yeah, I mean, I guess that's the the tension. I mean, and the, the thing that makes Boober's just insistent on is you can't resolve the tension. Like there's no dialectic here. Like you, you, and this is where, again, he's very close to Freud without knowing it, that like you're going to, the same bad things are going to happen again and again. There's no way of getting around it. There's no solution there, there just is what it is. And even like, you know, the whole, you know, find eternity in the moment sort of stuff, it, it, you know, it's, it is just a moment. It will, it will go away. And that whole like cliche of like people attempt to, I think sort of in a cheap way, capture the moment of dialogue with things like, you know, live in the moment or whatever, this sort of toxic well, live every moment as if it were your last. I mean, which I guess would just be crying and calling your parents and apologizing or whatever. Um, something absolutely well, horrifying. Well, Jung was infuriating in this way too, and this was what my writing was on, but that that in one moment he talks about these moments of of the transcendent function as being, you know, he called it God, he called it uh, whatever, some black power that we connect to. And then, you know, other moments he's like, no, it's just two thoughts coming together and producing a new thought. And that's really all it is. It's just some synthesis of, of thinking. And yeah, I can and appreciate why yeah. that existed in, yes, in such, in such polarizing ways, because it's, it's, I think it's confusing. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the question, the, the problem with Jung, I think, is that he tries to, he tries to synthesize this and come up with like a, a sort of whole world. And Buber's very clear, there is the world and then there's this sort of fractured space of relation, which is sort of in and of the world in one way, but in a way is is not of the world in a sort of standard way. It's not, it recasts the world. And like I said, to go back to that painting, and maybe I have a relational moment, I, I paint some sort of Rothko-ish painting. And then, you know, maybe someone kid comes to the art gallery and looks at it and has this sort of, it, it inspires a new relation. So some things inspire more sure, relations sure, right, right, than others. Right, sure. But when that happens, there's a crack and you're, you're no longer in the kind of solid world of, of things and space and time and everything being well-ordered. Everything is, is actually in your space and time of the relationship, right? Well, thank you for creating this fractured space of relation with me. I know you have yeah, <laughs> some, I, some I, worldly I, duties to attend to. I have to. more things to fracture. Um, <laughs> so anyway, well, yeah, thanks a lot for having me. One of the original ideas that brought me to study psychology was the very idea of the cracks that appear in our consciousness, the breaks in what we experience as real, consistent, and what we know. This brought on this incredible search to understand what Jung called the dissociability of the psyche. And as hard as it is, I think, to confront this material, I believe in some ways it prepares us. As Dustin started the podcast today, describing we have to accept that what we come to know is real, permanent, and what we love in our life, we're going to lose. And I think there's something important about letting that wash over us. In many ways, I feel like it can help us come into relationship with moments in our life that we initially tend to resist. And even recently with my son, when he was letting go of something that he loved to do because he wanted to do something else, 
he acknowledged the deep sadness in him. And being next to him, I actually thought that was very progressive. I love sharing this space with you. Please send me your feedback. You can write me feedback at mitchellsmolkin.com. Join me on Instagram at I am Mitchell Smolkin. And listen next week. Please share this. Tell people. Get in touch with me. I'll see you next time. I remain faithfully yours.